The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Powell. The move to the cloud has been called the biggest thing to happen to business since the dawn of the internet. At its best, it means little businesses can enjoy the kind of enterprise software advantages that big players used to only have, and big companies get enterprise software without the enterprise price tags. We've seen it in business, with local hero Zero becoming one of the great SaaS, that software as a service, companies in the world, and in its wake, an ecosystem of possibility emerged. Some of the companies that came after were an obvious move of putting a business tool into the cloud. Others have pulled together a bunch of tools to change every element of how a business can operate. And one of the beauties of the cloud is that you can serve customers everywhere. So where making, say, specialist vet software might not have been viable in an isolated New Zealand market, now the world is your market which is the story of local SaaS star EasyVet, a vet practice management software solution that's been on a tear, tripling year-on-year year and opening offices in North America, Auckland and London, with 100-plus staff around the world. With 65% of their revenue in North America and a huge wave of change happening with vets looking for a better way, EasyVet is a fantastic Kiwi success story you may not yet have heard of unless you're in a vet clinic and then you most definitely should have. To talk the journey, sustainable scaling, and the future, CEO Hadley Bognuda joins us now. G'day, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Simon. Hey, so tell me, how did EasyVet come to start? Why Vet Software? Yeah, so we, uh, our previous venture, we built a infrastructure company that was really providing IT services in the chemist space, and effectively, we ran out of chemists, so we just got to a market share place where you know we were never going to get the um, brother-in-law that was looking after that that chemist in Invercargill we were never going to get that business so we sort of looked at what other industries or what other verticals work for us so we tried some lawyers some accountants and some veterinary clinics there was a really big veterinary specialty center in Mount Albert and they were looking for a better way to do um, what they were doing and primarily it was all around the medical data so we want to record these medical records and we want to transmit them to our referral partners 
And so we really went on this consultative journey to find them something. We looked all over the world and then came back and reported that actually we didn't find anything that's that great. And naively back then we were like, well, let's just build you a website. We sort of saw that as an opportunity to build something quickly at a low cost but could be quite customised to what their workflow was. And probably after a few months of that, we realized there was an opportunity to commercialize something that was a bit more special. And it was before the cloud kind of started, but as it evolved, we saw that actually, um, you know, we could build some cloud software that could, could really change the game. And at that stage, the idea of kind of practice management software, that's something that people might have heard of in uh, law or, of course, in kind of medicine. Um you know what was the state of the of was was there on premise you know you know kind of the legacy the stuff that wasn't in the cloud available uh, or, or was it simply a case of there just not being a solution for vets? Yeah, there was plenty of um, plenty of on prem solutions, but it was typically pretty old. I, I remember that particular practice in Mount Albert. They used a, a blue screen DOS system that you you know you'd tab around the the screen and you'd pop in your data and the the sort of things that you could do and the automation you could get was pretty limited. There were more comprehensive things, particularly in the North American market, but they were really expensive and quite clumsy, and really the pace of um, development was quite slow. And one of the really interesting things about the veterinary vertical is that most of the software, I'm going to say 90%, is owned by big distribution. So big distribution partners that primarily are there to sell pharmaceuticals, they want to own market share, and one of the ways that they do that is to buy a software company that has 5, 000, oh, sorry, 500 or 1,000 installations of their software. And typically when they do that, they, um, they grind the innovation to, to a halt because their, their business model isn't about making great software, it's about selling more pharmaceuticals. So the innovation um, cycle in the veterinary space is quite slow. That looks like a great opportunity then. And so mm-hmm. as you got deeper and deeper into this world, what, what did, when did you kind of make the decision to, to to try and make that into a product that could go anywhere? And, you know, when did you start taking the kind of uh, the, the jump into just focusing on that? Yeah, well, we, we were sort of, we, we chose a really interesting time to give this a crack around about the time when the GFC was was happening. And so we'd put a bunch of money in and, and a lot of hard um you know, hard, hard, long hours to try and build something good. But initially, we weren't really thinking of building something massively global. And as the as the sort of situation evolved, we realised that actually we had put in a pretty big investment, and it was going to be a, a a decision about do we walk away from that investment or do we double down? And if we are, what's the strategy to do that? And how can we get it big enough that it's actually going to be able to pay us back something in the end? And so there was sort of a paradigm moment where we really made a, a, a kind of gutsy call to keep going. And I think we spent about seven years in R&D with only 20 hospitals where we really refined the product and we made a call that we're going to really invest heavily before we go and get customers. Because as soon as you get customers, of course, your innovation is much much slower to, to kind of evolve and, and your investment goes into other areas other than product. And I think that in hindsight, that was a pretty good call because when we went to market, we had one of the most comprehensive solutions that was pretty you know, refined for the type of key customer that we wanted. And I think that's been a, a key ingredient in our, our success. What does the market look like? Like, how did you choose your your seven, your, 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 you know, your, um, your, your 20 odd uh, hospitals to work with for that seven years of innovation, which is a, a very kind of unique business model to be able to do that, isn't it? Or it's a very unique approach. 
Yeah, the market's really interesting and it's quite diverse. So there's lots of different little segments you can cut it into. Obviously, we're, we're all going to be familiar with our small animal com- companion animal veterinarian that's going to look after you, you, you know, your cat and your dog and your, your, your bunny rabbit. But there's, you know, large animal vets that are focusing on bovine. There's equine vets focusing, on, obviously, on the equine horse space. Um, you've got exotic vets. And, and where we really um, did particularly well was focusing on big specialty referral and emergency veterinary clinics. And I think um, lots of people in New Zealand probably don't understand what they are or what they look like. But, we, you know, we, we sort of think about the mum and dad vet that has, you know, 10 to 20 staff. Easy Vet focused on these these sort of larger specialty referral ER clinics, and some of the bigger ones we've got, in, um, particularly in North America, you know, they can have 500 staff working out of one facility, so they can be really, really big businesses that provide all the sort of services that you'd get in human healthcare, CTs, MRIs, you know, all of the really great diagnostics that enable them to do um, pretty advanced uh, veterinary medicine. You know, I've seen. Um, sort of movie stars that have their dogs in, in, in a big hospital in Los Angeles on dialysis, for example. So some really um, interesting and, 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 and comprehensive um, stuff going on around the world that we were, were interested in trying to be a part of. And how did you tap into them? So did you kind of roll up to, uh, you, you know, a, um, a very high-end vet hospital in Los Angeles and say, hey, we're looking to build this, um, can we be a development partner with you and build what you want? Or what, what's the kind of approach well it's it's we felt i would say we just fell into it we've we've made so many mistakes um that have been great for our journey and i think anyone who's sort of trying to take something global if you're not making mistakes you're probably not doing the right things because that's how you kind of figure out where the opportunities lie we'd really been a product focused company and i think um we're really proud of that and the customers that we had in that initial 20 were really excited about the product and it was actually really changing the way that they could do things and we saw people that were doing better clinical work and recording their data um, in a way that they hadn't been able to imagine before but also doing well financially whereas before they'd kind of struggled to get both right and I remember we we went and exhibited at our first conference which was actually a world congress that was in Auckland and there was a, a specialist that came from Melbourne and um he knew one of the, the specialists from one of the practices we had in Auckland and he said, you know, I want you to bring the software to Melbourne. Um, I think it's fantastic. It's going to really change what we're doing. And I sort of thought at that time, well, I don't know, we're, we're just we're still kind of getting this New Zealand thing right. We're still refining it. And he's like, no, you've, you've, got, to, you've got to bring it to Melbourne. So a developer and I, we jumped on a plane and went and deployed this, this pretty big practice in Melbourne. And there were a lot of things that we didn't get right but it sort of taught us what we needed to do to kind of take it to the next level and be able to scale it out. And then, you know, a year later we had a whole bunch in Australia and it wasn't very long after that that we actually had a big chunk of the market share of that specialty referral space. And and what we saw is we'd go into a, a city, we'd go into Melbourne or Sydney and we'd get the big referral hospital and then all the primary care vets, all the, all the, all the, all the smaller ones, would see all this referral information coming out of that specialist and then they'd be like, what's well, easy vet? I want to know about that. And then they'd kind of come in our sales funnel and eventually they'd become customers. And so we'd see um, you know, each market develop um, city by city or, or region by region. We had sort of got to a tipping point with Australia where we had actually a, a much bigger business there than we did in New Zealand and we were sort of like, what's next? How far do we take this thing? And we're like, well, if we're going to have a global business, we may as well 
have, have, have the whole globe. And um, so we sort of signed up to a whole bunch of trade shows and we were going to do trade shows in London and in America and Canada and parts of Asia and stuff. And I remember we, we had, I, I think, um, London Vet Show was at the, the end of November that year. And then we had um, t- uh, the next biggest ones in North America in, in January and February the year after. And so we, you know, we built a, a pretty conservative stand and hopped on a plane and flew, flew to London and went and talked about our product with people over there. And this was probably, um, you know, a really humbling moment for us because actually what we found in London was that our product wasn't really a good fit for market. There were a whole bunch of integrations that we hadn't thought about. There were some um, just there were some key differences in the market and the way that they did things. Insurance was really big. Wellness was really big. Some of the products were different. And we just really didn't understand it. And the market itself was pretty negative in terms of um, what we were bringing. We were really excited about this product. But they weren't excited about it. They thought, you know, who are these guys coming over here and why do they think they can come and sell us their product without knowing who we are and what we're doing? And so you... Um, you know, you, you have a pretty um, decent amount of time to think about it when you go to fly 30 <laughs> hours back to New Zealand. And I remember thinking, man, I, I think we're just, we've bit off way more than we should have. And maybe we should just um, crawl back to New Zealand and, and operate in that part of the world. But we'd already invested at that stage in these North American conferences. And so as it progressed over the next couple of weeks, I just sort of got to the point where I was like, well, we've spent the money. If nothing else, we'll just go up there and we'll learn a bit about the market, the customers, and and what you know what they're doing. And we went up there, um, and uh, you know these conferences are pretty big, much bigger than the London Vet Show, which probably had you know four thousand people go or something. This one in Orlando has twenty thousand vets go, so it's a really big deal. We had a tiny little stand right down the back corner, and um, but we went we went up there and. Straight away, our stand was really busy. There was people coming, you know, just one after the other. And they really got the cloud concept and they were just a completely different mindset in terms of their business. And so, you know, I think we we had this um, small animal clinic from Miami sign up on the stand and was really excited. And we kind of got a couple of contacts in some really big hospitals there. And, of course, we talked a big game about, um, you know, we've got these big hospitals in Australia and in New Zealand, but really America was something that was quite different again. And we had none of the localization done and we didn't understand enough about the market or the integrations. But a couple of people backed us and um, there was one big practice particularly um, that I remember in New York, um, upstate New York near Buffalo, um, and they pretty much signed up within a few weeks of that first conference. And also a New Zealand vet that had um, actually used our software in New Zealand was working in, a, in, in probably the largest referral centre in Vancouver in Canada. And so they signed up and they were kind of our cornerstone um, first couple of really big customers that we got. And, you know, we put a lot of effort into making sure that they were successful. But once we'd got up there and we'd got those ones done, the rest kind of just started falling into place and the word of mouth spread. And, you know, a few years later, we're, we're sort of the market leader in that segment up there. And I imagine with that kind of work, like you're talking about the um, the enriching the data, with normal medical practice, you'd be able to ask the patient, you know, are you allergic to anything? What was the last operation you had? You know, tell me this, tell me that. 
not so helpful with animals. So I imagine that kind of really being able to keep data and 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 um and have really valuable data is super important. Yeah, I think so. I I mean, I think from day one we'd figured out that having a really great medical record was important, and I think the guys that we work with in Mount Albert they were really passionate about that, and and so many systems. So many practice management systems were really good at the financial bit or bookings or, or whatever, but they really didn't care about the medical bit. We cared about the medical bit first and the rest came later. In fact, when we first started, we didn't have the rest. All we had was the medical record. And so our medical record was sort of split into a, a, a more comprehensive SOAP format where, you know, we would record what well, what is the presenting problem and, you know, what what is the what is the physical exam, what's the history, what, what, what is the assessment, what's the plan, and then um, what is the diagnosis. So we started building discrete data that actually was really valuable. We also built a lot of integrations with different um, systems and bits of equipment, so diagnostic uh, results from chemistry machines or uh, X-ray images from an X-ray platform were all flowing back into the system, and suddenly I guess those vets had kind of a central view on well, clinically what is what is happening, and then how do we sort of data mine that data and understand if, if that's happening in this case, what, what is happening in the next case and in the case after that. And that medical first approach allowed you to kind of, um, yeah, like happen upon that amazing sales strategy of going into the big medical thing that every small company then had a relationship with and becoming your kind of channel to market. And that's such a cool idea. And that's just kept getting bigger, hasn't it? So you recently signed um, and, and implemented a partnership with Cornell University, who have an enormous uh, vet- veterinary uh, teaching, but also practice uh, side to what they do. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess we've just been really passionate about it the whole time. And the the, the Cornell story is an interesting one. Actually, probably four years ago, maybe even five years ago, they opened an equine practice in New York. And they did a demo back then. And that was when we were first starting to sort of look at going to North America. And and at that time, they decided that we just weren't ready. But they kept following us and kind of keep keeping a pulse on what we were doing. And I think the university market's a really tough one because historically, a lot of companies have avoided it because they can be quite um, bureaucratic in terms of deciding on um, the most basic workflows and how they should 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 happen. And and there had been some pressure commercially. Um, in terms of being able to provide them with a solution perhaps below market rate because they were a university. And I think that's changed. And so uh, about a year ago, we really started engaging with Cornell again about how could we actually build a platform to help you train people better in the clinical workflows? How can we collaborate together and what what can we achieve? And um, it's been a great partnership. And I think to pull off a project of that size and kind of get some of the results that we're getting and some of the integrations that have come out of it is something that we're really proud of. And also the the following of other universities that's in behind Cornell that are adopting the platform um, now that it's sort of a proven thing. And tell me about the work you're doing with Cornell in an innovation space inside the business as well, like um, this idea of improving workflows and using AI and machine learning to be able to actually um, to, to, to be able to kind of train the, the the process to do its own processes. So t- tell me about that. That seems really interesting. Yeah. So the the student we we call it student verification platform. Where the, basically, the way that it works is that uh, uh, someone that's training they're recording the data that they think and they are writing it in a way that they think, 
and then different people within the faculty are able to review and approve or push back or have a conversation about how do we write this record or is actually what you think about these results correct or whatnot. And all that data is going into our platform. And so we're starting to see the ability to draw trends on that. And then once we understand it, we can sort of say, well, in this situation where we've seen, you know, we've seen this horse is presented for lameness and these are the, 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 the you know, these are the, the things that we've noted physically and, and these are the diagnostics that we've done and these are the results. We can start putting that data together and comparing it against other cases. And I think I would, I would say that we have one of the biggest um, medical data repositories in veterinary in the world because we have such a big focus on specialty referrals. So we have these big hospitals that have a lot of big data, and we can draw on that data and be able to actually um, provide some clinical analysis and stuff. And using the you know machine learning and AI, we can start feeding that back into actually the frontline processes. So it's all very well to have a big data repository, but if you're not doing anything with it, it's actually not valuable. And so we've spent the last you know, 12 years building the data. Now um, we've got a real focus on actually how can we change behaviours, how can we get better outcomes utilising that that big data that we've built. And that's really interesting that it's 12 years into the journey that that's where you're coming to that kind of like pure innovation space um, because a, a real thing that's characterised your journey has been kind of a focus on really high quality execution and commercialization of kind of a system that existed and making it the best it can possibly be rather than pure innovation and and yeah how do you how do you maintain that focus and and how do you um, execute like that yeah I mean I, I I find it a really interesting conversation we, we talk a lot I think in New Zealand about how do we innovate how do we become that tech country that exports to the world and I think the innovation piece is really key to that so without a good idea or a good product kind of dead before you start but once you've got a good idea and a good product, you've still got to commercialise it. And I think where we've struggled, where we've seen gaps, is how do we actually get over those those um, barriers and how do we commercialise the product properly? And as we've scaled, uh, you know, to get to, we're at 108 staff today or something like that, to get to that number, you've really got to have a, a really tough um, and tight execution strategy commercially. And I've seen lots of other startups, they you know, they, they go overseas, they put down a lot of infrastructure routes, they open office in San Francisco, they, you know, they, they're growing this big global footprint, but they haven't actually executed on on what their basic sales and marketing strategy is or what their customers want. We, we sort of took a very different approach. You know, we, for a start, as we were going global and particularly with our success in North America, we just spent a lot of money with Air New Zealand. And whilst it was tougher and the time zones were longer and we did a lot of flying, we really refined what we needed to do before we went and put those infrastructure routes down. So by the time we were ready to actually open presence in North America, we'd already had our presence in London for about 18 months. We really had a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week operation running and we were able to do you know, best practice in terms of figuring out where do you go. And that's looking at, you know, geographically, where does it make sense? Regulatory um, environment, what's that like? Can we employ the right talent there? Can we afford to pay them? Can they afford to buy houses? And that's how we kind of settled on Dallas and Texas, because for our age and stage, that was a really good fit. And talking to a lot of other founders that have done it the other way, they've kind of gone and put roots down in the wrong places, then spent a lot of time and money and effort ripping that back out. And so 
it would just be so useful to have support, I think, for New Zealand startups around how do you make those good commercialization decisions so that you can scale safely. And I think for, for us, where we're at now, we're trying to get from, you know, our 108 people today to, you know, many hundreds of people and take our, you know, our thousand hospitals to, you know, 10,000 hospitals. How do we scale that safely so that we don't, you know, grow it too quickly and have to lay a bunch of staff off or, you know, we take our eyes off the customer and then don't innovate and disrupt enough and someone else builds a better product. So that commercialization piece is, is super important. And you've seen, you know, enormous growth in the last couple of years, but it's not on the back of, you know, oh, we've we've uh, kind of, you know, um, lucked into a, a vein. It's off the back of uh, a slow and steady build over kind of 10 years before that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we took a very different approach. We we invested a lot of time and money and we built a really great product before we went to market. And now we're in a position where our product is, you know, very, you know, very well known in the key market and people really want it. So we, we you know, when we talk to people um, and we're trying to recruit people into our business, it's really interesting because first thing is they've never heard of us. We've never been to all the startup meetups. We haven't been out there parading around about what we're doing. We've been pretty busy focused on actually our customer and growing, you know, what their experience is like and what our customer base is like. Now, as we we kind of scale it out, we need to, um, you know, we need to be able to deal with the growth problems. And the growth problems are, are, are really good ones, but they're really difficult ones to, to solve. So, uh, uh, you know, a couple of examples would be, we've had trouble finding enough space to put our people. And so people think that's pretty easy. You just go and lease a building and then you just hire some more people. But, you know, like in London, a, a really um, a really good example of this is that, you know, in New Zealand, we would just rent a building. Someone owns that land and buildings and you, you rent it. The legals are pretty simple and, and you get that done. In London, someone owns the land who rents it to someone who owns the building, who rents it to someone else, who subleases it to you. So actually to go and execute on some space takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of time. And so that can be really frustrating when you're on you know, a really different time zone. And some of those practical things like getting enough space and being able to recruit the right talent, they're the growth challenges that, that have kind of held us back from going faster. And we've, we, you know, we've got a thousand hospitals live today. There's some very big ones. Some of our biggest ones are sort of turning over $50 million out of one building. So they're very big businesses. And, um, you know, we've, I think we've got 500 that are, that are paid deposits and are onboarding. So we just can't meet the market demand for our product fast enough. And we're, focused on trying to answer that problem, but also scale safely. So not not hiring another 100 people and 70 of them being wrong, but hiring 50 of the right people and, and I guess taking that, let's build something steady and scalable and safely that actually can be successful long term. How big is your product moat? Like how long can you, uh, you know, say to people, look, you're just going to have to wait a little bit longer as we grow, especially in a place like America where – you know, from my experience working in that market, you know, they kind of expect everything now exactly as they want it. Yeah, that's our challenge, right? We've got to, we've got to figure out how to do it faster. And we, we've built um, some systems now that are helping us do it faster. But it's still pretty big. It's a big amount of work. I mean, if you're going to change the platform that 100 people or 200 people are using every day, and you're going to move their data that they've had for 30 years to your new platform, and you're going to clean it and configure it, that process is a big process, so it kind of takes 12 to 
26 weeks to work through that anyway. And I think um, it's about articulating that and about articulating value. We've had competitors that are like, yeah, we'll get you up and running next week. And some of those have been our success stories because they've gone and done that and it's been a horrible experience and then they've come back to us. <laughs> but the, the, the sort of scary and exciting thing is that the actual market is very, very, um, you know, it's very early. We're only, we've, we've only sort of seen about 6 or 7% of the global veterinary market, which is a really big market, um, actually move to cloud-based products. So in the next few years, we're going to see the bulk of them move. And I think people like Zero sort of saw that, that initially you had your early adopters and, and um, you know, they were getting good uptake and there was a lot of noise about it. But then at some point, there's sort of a tipping point where everyone's like, right, Everyone else is doing it. I want to do it. I can mm. see the benefits of it. And so we're really gearing up for that. We want to be able to um, go from putting 50 hospitals a month on the platform to be able to put you know, several hundred on the platform per month. And what stage of the journey are you now? You're saying 6 or 7% of the markets out there. You know, how, how big do you see the company getting? Or what, what, would be, what would be a successful kind of size and shape for EasyVet for you? Yeah, I think I think we're always reimagining that. If I'm honest, but our uh, our goal at the moment is to get to ten thousand hospitals, and our goal is to focus on the bigger, um, more complex hospitals. But the market is evolving as well, and I think where we're doing very well is um, in that enterprise space. One of the things that we did uh, about two years ago is we we really noticed and started investing in building tools for the consolidation, and so in the, in the global financial crisis. I think most um, PE institutions started to worry about where they were putting their money because some bets were were obviously um, creating risk for them. And we saw roll-ups of you know primary care, healthcare, and humans. We saw you know dentist roll-ups. We saw ophthalmology roll-ups. And then I think they turned to veterinary. And veterinary, you know, is a, a really interesting um, space because historically there were uh, more more male vets than female vets that were business owners. And in the last 20 years, 80% of, of vets that come out of university are actually female. And the um, owner adoption rate um, just didn't, didn't climb. And there, were, there was less interest, I think, for female vets to own these businesses. And I think that's starting to change, which is exciting. But what it's meant is that there's, there's been a lot of um, you know, male vets that are maybe between 60 and 70 that are at a point where they want to retire and there's no one to sell their business to. So a few years ago, we saw the consolidation start where these PE companies would be able to form a, 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 an IPO or, or would be able to build a company and they'd be able to go around and buy um, you know, 50 or 100 or 200 hospitals. Our platform kind of lets them do that and consolidate all the data and be able to control. So they can let you know, the, the hospital and, 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 and Parnell or whatever still run as its own hospital, but it can be part of a bigger enterprise play where they can control what resources they have, what, you know, how they sell their products and services and, and, and roll the data back up. And so our growth strategy is exciting because we've got a lot of these consolidator clients rolling out our platform and you start having discussions not about 
can I sell you um, EasyVet for your hospital, but actually how can we um, how can we sell EasyVet into your 200 hospitals or your 300 hospitals? And those consolidators are starting to to consolidate each other. So we we would um, you know we've just had one actually in New Zealand where. Um, Pet Doctors was a, a great customer of, of, of EasyVet. They had uh, 25 hospitals on the platform and uh, NVC in Australia was a, um, another great customer of EasyVet who had about 70 hospitals and then they put them together and now they've got nearly 100 hospitals and they're all on that EasyVet platform. And um, the, the, the big challenge for us growth-wise, you were talking about how do we, how do we can kind of control that, that moat of, of, of demand and desire in, in some of those consolidators, particularly the ones in the US, they've seen a massive revenue impact by moving to the platform. And one one I can think of in particular, they've had about a nine percent lift by moving, you know, these these hospitals from whatever software they're on to to our platform. So after a while, once they've done sort of 20, 25 hospitals, they come around and have a discussion with you that's like, we're really happy with how it's going, but we're really unhappy with how fast it's happening because we see these nine percent you know, growth rates coming through, we, we obviously want that to hit sooner rather than later. And that's that's kind of the the key challenge that we've got to answer is how do we scale up our team to be able to deliver that um, more efficiently and, and, and faster and how do we help them scale their team so that they can actually do some of it themselves. And is that something where, have you tr- taken that quite a conservative approach of spending ahead of revenue along the way? Is this something where you then go out and... Um, you know, uh, get extra investment to put on a lot of people, or how have you run that kind of process? No, I think we've we've sort of tried to build the business as it, as it's gone. So we um, one of the things that we were really aware of is that a lot of startups are very focused around their capital, so they spend a lot of time fundraising and and worried about how do I get my next bit of funding to get my runway extended. We really were. Um, solely ever focused on our customers. So we, we want to know, well, what, what do our customers want? What, what's motivating them? How can we disrupt what they're up to? And and not worry about the funding piece. What a, what a radical idea for business. <laughs> and I think it's really hard to do that. Like you have to have good, you have to have really good capital to start with, which luckily we had from our previous venture. But um, it's what it's meant is that we've also been quite frugal. So we haven't wasted money because we just haven't had it. We've had to make people work really hard for the outcomes because that's all we could afford. I think now we're at scale, we're in a pretty unique position where we can really look after some of the people that have got us there. And we're still focused on our customers. Um, and now not only can we be disruptive and a high growth company, but we can also be a profitable company and, and kind of give that back to New Zealand. And I think um, that's when I was sort of saying earlier about commercialization. It would be great. You know, I think for, if the government wants to do something to really change the game for, for New Zealand startups doing something on the big scale, it's, it's about how do they commercialize it successfully so that we're not just building companies that export, but we're building companies that export and make money and can grow and can add value back because that's what will grow the next set of companies that are coming out. Yeah, and maybe aren't reliant on an exit to make everyone happy. They can actually just kind of stably grow and invest. Yeah, and I mean, we've just we've just invested in another startup um, in the vet space where we're going to be the controlling interest. And I think that's where we're sort of starting to be able to give back, where, um, you know, again, if we were really beholden to, um, you know, whoever's providing our capital, we'd be really going along what their strategy was rather than what our strategy is. And I think that's um, that that's something that can make all the difference. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs wanting to start out and wanting to, um, yeah, wanting to take the leap to, to uh, 
make an idea into a company? Well, I think you've just got to be prepared to give it a go and you've got to be prepared to put a lot of hard work and effort into it. I don't think that there are probably that many success stories that didn't come about from someone actually grinding it out and working pretty hard. And if they are, they probably don't get most of the value out of it at the end or they were just incredibly lucky. Um, most of the successful sort of other founders that I see, they, they've really worked hard and they've inspired their team to work hard. And you know, the, the culture that they've built has been around not, not, not necessarily um, all the fun things that you get to do as a startup, but what does success look like and what does a, a developer feel like once they've come in and they've worked really hard and they've built something that actually they can see in the market as making a difference? And, and that success, I think, is, is what you've got to build as a founder. You've got to build the outcome rather than just the idea. And what do you wish you'd known earlier along the way? <laughs> oh, there's so many things that um, I, I wish I'd known earlier. And I think, you know, each time you do something new, you probably... Um, you know, you probably do it differently, but actually, a lot of the a lot of the mistakes you make and a lot of the failures that you have, they lead you to some of the successes that you enjoy the most. And whilst um, you know, I can think of some of the really tough times we've had, like when I was flying back from London and we absolutely failed on that side of the world. Um, actually, they're the ones that you remember that got you to the good times, and you don't you don't um, regret any of that. In fact, that's what made you what you are. So. Don't be afraid to fail on that stuff. Like that's that's what builds that success. Thank you for coming today, Hadley Bognuda of EasyVet CEO, uh, and for sharing a, you know a really different story of SaaS success and company building. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you very much to Tina Teller for producing, and thank you very much for having us along. If you do have any suggestions for the pod, hit us up on Twitter. It's at Simon underscore Pound. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.